This is an ABC podcast. All right, we'll launch in. Hello and welcome. I'm David Spears coming to you today from Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I'm joined this week by ABC Darwin's Joe Laverty on Larrakia land in Darwin and Greg Jennett, the host of Afternoon Briefing. And when he's not traipsing around Ukraine, he's joining us from Ngunnawal country in Canberra. Welcome to you both. Great to be here, David and Joe, with both of you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me again. Well, great to have you both here. Look, the Prime Minister has had a jam-packed week of meetings with world leaders. He's been at the ASEAN Summit, the East Asia Summit, the G20. He's now at the APEC Summit. It is summit season. Uh, The big moment, though, was the meeting with China's President Xi Jinping, the first bilateral meeting between the two leaders or between the leaders of the two countries, in about six years. So that deep freeze, the diplomatic deep freeze, is over, it would seem. Will it now lead to an easing of trade restrictions and the release of detained Australians and perhaps a a dialling down of tensions generally? Before we speculate on that, Dan has a good question to kick us off about how we got to this point. And Dan asks, it's clear that with a change of government, the Chinese-Australian relationship has changed. Why is this? Joe, let me throw it to you first. Is it the change of government in Australia that's brought about this, this, uh, you know, uh, this meeting, this breakthrough? Well, it must be, wouldn't you think? Because Dan's right to have said this, that things seem to have changed. And it was only last week or the week before, I think, Four Corners did a special on the rising tensions between the USA and China over Taiwan and what that would mean for Australia. And sadly for us, we did note that they used scenarios to predict what would happen if conflict did break out post-2025, and they put ominous music to it, and this was one of the scenarios. In this war game, US aircraft fly from Australian bases to attack the Chinese. That immediately puts a bullseye on Darwin and RAF Tyndall, with China launching long-range missiles towards the military targets in northern Australia. The aim is to destroy runways and fuel tanks. You can imagine Territorians sitting back watching Four Corners, maybe having a nightcap and going, what the heck? (laughs) We're used in the scenario of what happens if this all goes really to pot. And then the next day following this Four Corners report, people were messaging us on the text message machine saying, have a look up this app called Nuke Map, where you can actually plot what kind of destructive force it would be if China tried to bomb Darwin. So people are really, really tense. And now... Hey, oh, what a relief. It seems that we've sort of kissed and made up. Yeah, I mean, Greg, yes, I think with the change of government, we have seen a more careful approach from the Albanese government to certainly what we saw in the final months of the Morrison government, where, you know, there were all sorts of attempts to brand Labor as soft on China, appeasers at Beijing, Manchurian candidates and so on. That element seems to have gone from the debate. But there are also some bigger forces at play here as to why Xi Jinping has met not just Anthony Albanese, but a very lengthy meeting with Joe Biden. Uh, He he does seem to be re-engaging a bit with the West. Oh, that was one of the standout features, wasn't it, of summit season, which isn't actually over yet, but it's drawing to a close pretty quickly. President Xi has come along, with the exception perhaps of the 
Canadian Prime Minister. He's come along wanting to engage, and in big ways too, at least if you look at the Joe Biden meeting, three hours, roughly speaking, where they canvassed everything from trade to Taiwan and uh, the war in Ukraine. So Australia, Anthony Albanese was just a, a natural extension of that, a part of that. Of course, an election win by his Labor government was always going to be a, a natural reset point in this relationship. But yeah, you're right, David. China does have its own reasons for doing this re-engagement. And most of it is economic because, as with all leaders, if your economy is tanking, then that puts pressure on the regime, even in a state like communist China. So plenty of analysts have observed that he had his own practical and pragmatic reasons, Xi Jinping, to engage as he did widely and, you know, some might say deeply with world leaders. And it's interesting that in the, what is it, a few weeks since he's consolidated his power in China. He's now the leader for life, essentially. We are starting to see him, with that security behind him, able to shift on a few fronts, even those COVID zero rules in China that have involved the crippling lockdowns. There's a little bit of movement on that now as well in their policy setting. So, look, it's going to be interesting to see what comes ahead. You mentioned, though, his dressing down of Justin Trudeau. Let's just have a, a quick listen to how that played out. Everything we discuss is then leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. And that's not all the way the conversation was conducted. Greg, just quickly on this, because you've covered a lot of these summits, as have I, over the years. You don't see that too often, and it did seem to be really put on for the cameras as well. What was your read of that very interesting moment? Yeah, neither dummies or innocents here. They had a camera literally within a metre with a microphone on top of it, recording every utterance translated both ways into English and Chinese dialect. So they knew what they were doing. And look, to be honest, Canada's relations with China have been every bit as fraught as Australia's in recent times. It just seems that uh, it's going to be more long-running in their case, perhaps, than it will be in ours. But neither was taking a backward step, nor perhaps could they afford to, because everything is viewed through the prism of, of weakness. And so it went. But it looks like it's going to be a longer road back for Justin Trudeau to re-engage, because President Xi told him, you know, you must have the preconditions for engagement on, on trade and all these other irritants. That appears to be entirely absent in their relationship as recorded on the video camera. Yeah, Canada's turn to be in the doghouse. Hey, Joe, just coming back to you know what you were talking about earlier, I'm just keen, uh, before we move on from the, the Xi Jinping meeting, Australian attitudes have been hardening towards China, it's fair to say, over some years because of the tension in the relationship and China's behaviour and all of these things. A lot of these problems are still there, though, aren't they? The way China treats the Uyghur people, what it's doing in the Pacific, what its intentions are on Taiwan. Do you think everyone, and certainly the listeners that you hear from, are happy with Anthony Albanese engaging with Xi Jinping, or are they still a bit cautious about all of this? I would say that the layperson is not really across what's going on with most of those topics that you've just mentioned, because they're pretty deep and complicated topics, which... We don't have a lot of information about because China is so closed, particularly on the Uyghur minorities and what's happening there. So I think that people are much more worried about what this means for their hip pocket 
and better engagement with China is better for everybody. If you're living anywhere close by where Four Corners is making a demonstration of what might happen if things go a bit pear-shaped, you'd be worried about military build-up. So to have those engagements with our Prime Minister and Xi Jinping is, I think, a good thing. And that's I think you can feel people generally go, that actually feels a bit better that we're out of the so-called deep freeze. Although it is worth noting there, Joe and David, that the government, the Albanese government, has been very careful in its own right to avoid any sort of Neville Chamberlain moment here, managing expectations and being extremely cautious about what it expects to flow from these talks, be it on trade or on security in the South China Sea. They're not encouraging any Australian to overestimate the significance of what happened in Bali. That's a very good point, and, and presumably because they don't know how quickly any of this is going to shift on the back of this meeting. I've got a question from Stephen who asks, where exactly did the money the Australian government donated to Ukraine go, and what exactly was it used for? Greg, you've just come back from a stint in uh, Ukraine. What's your answer to Stephen's question? Well, Stephen, one thing we did not see, and I think one thing you'd be flat out seeing on any road or railway line in Ukraine are the military armaments that are being donated and shipped in nightly. Now, this does literally happen under the cover of darkness. We know that Australia's shipped in howitzers, it's shipped in Bushmaster vehicles, and then take our donations, multiply it by about 200, and that's what the US has done, not to mention other NATO allies. So this sort of gear, uh, ammunition, weaponry, is going in each and every day. Australia's been a little transparent but less than fully transparent about exactly what it's donating. I've mentioned some of the hardware there a moment ago, but you sure don't see a lot of it. It's hidden in what looks like civilian trucks fully covered and it's trucked all the way to the front line and put promptly into battle. But there is a reason why it's not you know, fully disclosed, <laughs> obviously, because it could become a target in and of itself as it's moving through what's a pretty large country really. May I ask, Greg, when you're over there, most of us will never go to Ukraine and certainly not at this time in its history. Did you feel safe when you were over there or did it feel like there was war unfolding around you and at any minute anything could happen? What was most striking, Joe, I think is the brutal nature of this war in a way that I had not fully appreciated through the news reports we consume at home. So, you know, I suppose the word for a reporter there, or at least, you know, this one as we moved around the country, is there's a sense of vulnerability but not constant danger. Of course, anything could go wrong at any time. We had those Shahid drones from Iran landing 400 to 600 metres from our hotel in Kiev, but for the most part, you felt like you had your security envelope as under control as it could be. But the other striking thing was just, you know, how far reaching Russia's ambitions are. I went thinking, look, this could all settle around, you know, a territorial dispute near the borders, Donetsk, Luhansk, and a little bit more thrown in for good measure. Not so. I mean, the, Russia is nightly firing into targets from Lviv into any city and town it can possibly hit by way of military range. And that's really surprised me. Uh, they're going for broke. Whether or not they can take the country, I don't think they can, but they are sparing nothing in their endeavours. Well, I mean, you're right, because we've seen a real step up in the bombardment just this week. I mean, is what you're saying, 
wherever you are in Ukraine, and, and you went to a number of places, you, you really are, as you say, vulnerable. You're within reach of these, these missiles. Absolutely, yes. So I've mentioned the incident in Kyiv. We also moved to an eastern, southeastern city called Krivi Ri, and air raid sirens are just a fact of life. Generally, they don't come through the daytime, but any time from about 1am through to around 7am, they'll go off, and they don't go off willy-nilly or half-cocked. They are usually closely linked to air defence systems, missile defence systems. So they are coming in nightly by the dozens, or as we learnt this week, a hundredfold uh, with cruise missiles uh, hitting. Well, they didn't all hit, to be fair. Some were blown up on the way into Ukraine. But it it is constant and it's a fact of life. It just goes on behind you. Of course, you can't be crippled by that. You have to just get on with uh, daily life and Ukrainians are doing just that. But it's, it's there and it's constant. Yeah, and the people of Ukraine have been living with that uh, for the better part of this year. So it just goes on and on. And it has big global implications. We know that Anthony Albanese has been raising with all the world leaders for energy prices, food security as well. So this is impacting everyone, but none more so than the people of Ukraine. Let's move on, though, to some domestic matters. We've got a question from Joff. And this is an interesting one. Joff asks, how do governments go about deciding their legislative agenda? Joff says, I'm somewhat perplexed how much of the current news is filled with IR stuff I struggle to understand and which I don't remember being a prominent part of the election, whereas things like addressing climate change and power costs, which to me were a big part of the election, don't appear to be anywhere near the top priority. Joff says he's interested in how we think the government has made the decisions it has in relation to these items. Well, Joff, uh, look, some things require legislation, some things don't, and governments often have to juggle several balls in the air at the same time. So right now, for example, it is trying to find a solution on the power prices. It's taking a while. It's very complex. There are implications from every lever that they might want to pull, but they're saying they'll have something to announce by the end of the year. But the IR stuff, you're right, it wasn't really spoken about in any great detail during the election campaign. But it sure is a priority in getting the legislation through in the final two weeks of Parliament for the year. Joe, does Joff's question reflect, do you think, a fairly common view at the moment of whether the government's got its priorities right? Well, again, I think the layperson probably would be going, what is all this IR stuff about? But if you recall before the election... Anthony Albanese definitely was talking about industrial relations reform, but he was saying things like fairer wages for the lowest paid people in Australia. So that's the kind of easy language, the election headline grabbing language that he used. And if we, if I may use the analogy of the sausage factory, the fairer wages is the sausage. What we're seeing now is the sausage factory at work to make all of that happen. And, and, and it is quite different to the three word slogan or the nitty-gritty of how to actually bring this about. Mm. It's very interesting, though, isn't it, to watch Parliament at play? And, David, you and Greg have got much greater political experience and minds than mine. How do you think it's going? No, well, I think you touched on this a moment ago, David. There is a bit of a trap to be fallen into in measuring government performance on the basis of how much legislation or how many sitting days there are. Governments legislate only that which they need to. So to take the climate change example, there is actually less than you might imagine has needed to be legislated so far. But 
as Chris Bowen and others get into the nitty-gritty of this program and you've got energy efficiency standards, fuel standards, safeguard mechanisms, all of that or some of that might have to play through the parliament. But it's not always a great scoreboard of how active or busy a government necessarily is. To Joe's question, though, um, how is the government going with the legislative program that it's put through so far? Well, you'd have to say they've been largely untroubled. They've got the numbers in the House, in the Senate. It's take the Greens plus one, and generally they have had not too much trouble finding that plus one. No, and I think in these final couple of weeks of Parliament, they will get another big election promise. That's the National Anti-Corruption Commission through the Parliament without too much trouble. All the indications are it will sail through. It might even have everybody voting for it in the end. And on the IR bill, I'd have to say they're probably going to get that through. It looks like they might uh, give a little more ground, make sure they get David Pocock over the line to get that one, that plus one in the Senate to get it done by the end of the year. That's certainly what they'd, uh, they'd like to do. So... Look, yeah, the scorecard, if they can get all that done at the end of the year, plus the climate legislation, you know, and then some of the things that aren't necessarily legislative, like the breakthrough (laughs) meeting with Xi Jinping and so on. Yeah, Anthony Albanese will head off to Christmas, a rather happy Prime Minister, I I am sure. We got a question from George. Why has negative gearing disappeared from politics? It's very bad policy, says George. It was addressed in the 2019 election campaign by Labor, but now, since their loss just seems too hot to approach. Well, George, I think you've kind of nailed it in the question there. That's right, isn't it, Joe? They lost that election, um, negative gearing, franking credits, all these things might be good in theory to have another look at them, but it doesn't sound like Labor's brave enough to go there yet. No, I wonder whether or not it'll actually take a real generational change because there is a whole generation that really, well, not everyone in that generation, but really gets a lot of advantage from negative gearing and owning lots of properties. And when they eventually, over the decades, pass and come down to those who can't even afford it, that's when perhaps things will change to try and get more people into the housing market. Yeah, Greg, it reminds me in a way of, you know, let's rewind 20 years (laughs) when you and I were kicking around in Parliament covering the GST, right? And Labor tried at one point to roll that back. That went badly for Kim Beasley. And then just ever since, they you know, wouldn't touch it. And, and then it became untouchable. Is that where we're at now with, with some of these things like negative gearing? Once bitten, twice shy. That's definitely the case with negative gearing. But you do have to wonder if the moment presented itself, whether Jim Chalmers might be up for a big burst of political bravery. By that, I don't mean in this parliament. But if this starts to look like a government that can string together one, two or even three terms, it's not by accident that the Treasurer's talking about Australians being smart enough to have difficult conversations and to make difficult decisions about budgets and tax. We know he's trying to guide something somewhere. Is that about housing taxes and tax breaks? Is it about additional levies? Is it about stage three tax cuts not proceeding? We can't be certain, but you couldn't say never ever when it came to housing tax concessions like negative gearing, because if the winds blow favourably in his direction. You don't have to scratch Labor backbenches, particularly of the left, too deeply to discover they would love to go there, but just not in the first six months of an Albanese government. And is negative gearing even really such a bad thing? I mean, there are lots of problems with it, with people owning, you know, 200 properties and they negatively gear all of them and there's, you know, the housing 
crisis problems with people not even able to get into the market. But if you are just someone who has one investment property and you're genuinely running it at a loss or you invest in some way, and it, but it keeps another family in that rental property for a reasonable price of rent and it's just a little bit, I don't know, maybe just tweaked a little bit so that it's fairer. Yeah, and this is the argument that Labor could have done a different approach in what they were trying to do with negative gearing and, yeah, limited it to you know one or two or maybe five properties and that's it, not the not the uh, dozens and dozens or even hundreds of properties. And I'm sure there aren't many that are doing. But, uh, look, do you really save that much money if, if you go down that path? I think the other thing is capital gains tax. This was didn't get perhaps as much prominence, but the other thing um, Labor pledged at that 2019 election was to wind back the capital gains tax uh, breaks that uh, are there when it comes to um, property investment as well. But, you know, look, we have a revenue problem. Something at some point is going to have to give. So it's probably a good thing for Labor to be keeping options open a little ajar, just a, just a touch. Final question we have is on cybersecurity. It comes from Mark, who says... Why are corporations and organisations not required to provide data held on individuals to those individuals on an annual basis? It would allow people to correct any errors and alert individuals if the data is no longer relevant and request it to be deleted. I really like this idea from Mark. I reckon, Joe, it would be a red tape nightmare for the companies. But why can't they tell us each year, I'm holding all of your data, do you still want me to? What's wrong with that? That's a great idea. And some of my... I recently got a message from my bank saying, can you please make sure all of these details we have on you are correct? And I'm lazy and I'm also a victim of cyber hacking, so it's probably my own fault, but I haven't double-checked any of that. But at least if some company that I was once engaged with some years ago and I'm no longer with and they messaged and said, by the way, we we still have the rights to your firstborn child or whatever, I would like to be able to say, no, I'd like to be able to revoke that. An unsubscribe button that we get on our emails, for example. Well, yeah, exactly. Greg, what, what do you think? Because I'm, I'm the same. You, you, you get occasionally an email that reminds you, hang on, I did subscribe to something or whatever it was, and they've still got my details. It would be nice each year to have at least the question asked, do you still want us to hold all this? Yeah, I do suspect, though, Mark, that cost would be an issue here in continuously reviewable and updated electronic records. So depending on the IT sophistication of an individual company, I guess we could assume that banks, insurance companies, utilities could probably invent this type of regime. But take your smaller loyalty systems, and everyone's got them, you know, from uh, Woolworths all the way down to a restaurant you once used somewhere or another. I can imagine the onus of having to send out those reminders. Maybe you have to drive the responsibility onto customers themselves to update them. Then you get to the retention question. Well, how long can their systems uh, retain your information. Uh, It's complex stuff, but gradually legislative regimes are starting to catch up with this. So we do now have greater digital privacy regimes in this country. Uh, That will only increase. In fact, only this week we did an interview with Bill Shorten, who'd been in Estonia, and he's coming back all starry-eyed about uh, going even further into uh, digital rights and privacy protections in this country. Let's see whether he can uh, make those changes and mount those arguments or not. But he thinks it's all eminently doable to to come up with a a more digitally focused society, but one 
one that uh, actually enhances, in his view, your your privacy uh, protections as well. Well, that would be a good thing. We will see. There's a lot of work going on in this space, uh, we know, and for very good reason because, yeah, we've all seen the cyber attacks which don't seem to be slowing down at all. We've got to go. Joe, Greg, great to talk to both of you. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Yeah, thanks very much, David, and good to catch up with you, Greg. Yeah, likewise, Joe. David, let's do it again before too long. See you soon. And a big thanks to our producers, Matt Bevan, Sam Dunn and Robin Powell. Please send us your questions via the ABC Listen app or you can send an email to backtoyoupodcast at abc.net.au. We'll be back in your feed next Friday. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.